You are listening to a recording of a MedAct event, Alternative Training on Prevent in Healthcare. The training took place on the 25th of May, 2021. A huge thank you to our guest speakers, Susan Wright, Dr. Lynn Jenkins, Marcelo Camus, and Amin. We hope you enjoy the podcast. Thanks for coming to our second in a series of our alternative trainings on prevent and healthcare, which has been organized by MEDAC Securitization of Health Group. So um, on the agenda for today, we'll be hearing from our two Securitization of Health Group um, members about um, who'll be presenting the group's work on frequently asked questions about prevent. Um, we'll then hear someone's experience of being referred to prevent. And finally, we'll hear from our guest speaker who'll be talking about participation in prevent trainings and referrals. We'll then aim to have 30 minutes for speakers to respond to questions asked by the audience members before closing. Um, next slide, please, Ian. For those of you who are coming across MEDAC for the first time today, MEDAC is an organisation that works with health workers to do research and evidence-based campaigning to challenge the root causes of global and public health inequalities. We work on issues ranging from climate change, peace and security issues, economic injustice and migration. And in my particular role, I support health workers to raise awareness about the health and socioeconomic impacts of war, armed violence and weapons, and their geopolitical root causes. More recently, however, we've been exploring the issue of securitization of health with a particular focus on prevent and counter extremism, but looking to at policing within and supported by health services. So last year, oh, next slide, Diane. Last year, we published False Positives, the Prevent Counter Extremism Policy in Healthcare, which is a report detailing the implementation and impacts of prevent in the NHS including analysis from information obtained through freedom of information requests, focus groups and interviews with health workers. Then just last week, we published a follow up report, racism, mental health and pre-crime policing, the ethics of vulnerability support hubs. After we were able to uncover significantly more information on these secretive counter-terror police led mental health projects or hubs, um, and I'm sure some of you have come from that, that launch event to this training today, and thank you if so. Um, so we'll hear more about the findings of our false positives report in the first presentation by members of MEDAT Securitization of Health Group. Um, next slide, please, Ayan. So yeah, with that in mind, um, I'm excited to introduce you to our really brilliant panelist speakers that we've got this evening who will be going into more depth on prevent and healthcare. So first, as I said, we'll be hearing from two members of MEDAC's Securitization of Health Group who will be presenting the group's work on FAQs about prevent. So we've got Amin, who is a GP in East London and a member of the Securitization of Healthcare Group. Um, and then we've got Marcelo Camus, who is a social practice artist creating works of art that uncover social narratives while giving a space for reflection. He worked with St. Christopher's Hospice for eight years, creating works that deal with the experiences of end of life and grieving. He's the co-founder and organizer of Social Art Network, a UK-wide association of creative professionals dedicated to socially engaged art. And he's currently lead artist on the AHRC Fellowship Social, Fellowship Social Art for Equality, Diversity and Inclusion. Um, 
And then we'll be hearing from Dr. Lynn Jenkins, who'll be talking about his experience of being reported to prevent. And Lynn is a retired GP and ophthalmologist. He's currently also a bereavement support volunteer for Cruz and heading up In My Own Bed Please, which is a lobby group which advocates for improved palliative care at home and in, at home in emergencies. And finally, we'll be hearing from Susan Wright, um, who, who, as I said, will be speaking on participation and prevent trainings and on referrals. And Susan is a crime and human rights barrister and an American lawyer whose career has included representing one of the first accused at the war crimes tribunals in Sierra Leone, as well as the first accused in the US facing the death penalty after a cold hit DNA match. In addition to crime, she has a practice which developed as a result of her previous roles as the head of Rights Watch UK and as director of Médecins du Monde UK. She acts for defendants, NGOs and other organisations on a range of public law matters. Um, but I'd also just like to acknowledge and thank those within our Securitization of Health group and those who we've spoken to along the way as part of MEDAT's research and further field, who've been really crucial in con contributing to the process of organising these training sessions. Because of the nature of PREVENT, there are many people within our group, often those who are Muslim, in more junior and precarious roles in the workplace and or who have had direct experiences of prevent that have left a really lasting mark on them who don't feel comfortable being the face of our work um, and so I think it's just important to acknowledge that and to thank them um, in this training and so this is just a reminder that we will be shutting the chat box function now but you will be able to ask questions using the Q&A function, which you can find at the bottom of your screen that I described earlier. So yeah, I think I'll be handing over now to um, Marcelo and Amin. So please do take it away, Marcelo and Amin. Thanks so much, Reem. Um, yeah, if we could get the first slide up. Yeah, okay. Um, so actually just, yeah, if you can go back, if you can go back to the um, that opening slide, just the title. Yeah, um, so I just wanted to start by just framing uh, the presentation a little bit. Um, firstly, to mention that it's, it's pretty short, it's only seven minutes long. Um, and as Reem's mentioned, it's based on the false positives report, which you can find on, on MedEx website. So there's no need to take notes. Um, you'll find all the content uh, on our website in the uh, FAQ section that we've produced for Prevent. Um, and you can also find more details in the report itself. Um, so if you could just try and, try and be present because it is, it is a lot of information to take in. If you've got distractions like mobile phone, just try and remove them. And um, yeah, just absorb as much as you can. It, it's, it's pretty fact heavy, although it's only seven minutes. Um, so, because of that, it can be important. It can uh, be easy to lose sight of of the real, uh, real lived impact uh, of prevent the devastating impact on people's lives. So, uh, in sight of that, I, I just wanted to start with with a quote by Aurora Levins Morales, and it's this: "The only way to bear the overwhelming pain of oppression is by telling in all its detail." In the presence of witnesses and in a context of resistance, how unbearable it is. If we attempt to craft resistance without understanding this task, 
we're collectively vulnerable to all the errors of judgment that unresolved trauma generates in individuals. It's part of our task as revolutionary people, people who want deep-rooted radical change, to be as whole as it is possible for us to be. This can only be done if we face the reality of what oppression really means in our lives, not as abstract systems subject to analysis, but as an avalanche of traumas leaving a wake of devastation in the lives of real people, who nevertheless remain human, unquenchable, complex, and full of possibility. So in the spirit of being as whole as it's possible for us to be, it's important for me personally uh, to start by naming another connected injustice this evening and that weighs heavily on me, as I know it does even more so on others involved in this work. And that's the oppression of the Palestinian people. Um, one connection is that you can be referred to prevent simply for expressing solidarity with Palestinians. And this has been a very real concern of many, many of us for outspoken school children during the recent bombing of Gaza. Another connection with Prevent is the uh, minoritization, the problematization and the dehumanization of a people, legitimizing their oppression for political ends. So I believe that outside of an internalized culture of racism and Islamophobia, Prevent could not actually exist. It's politically motivated and fueled by a suspicion of Muslims. How can we as healthcare workers hold values of non-maleficence, equality and confidentiality, yet not recognize that PREVENT is masquerading as safeguarding? Are Muslims not equally deserving of safety and dignity? And with those questions, I think we, uh, we can begin with the presentation. So uh, next slide, please. Yeah, so we start with what is prevent. You can just um, fill the slides so we can see it all. Um, so prevents part of the government's counterterrorism strategy with the stated aim of identifying vulnerability to radicalization. In 2015, the government extended the prevent duty to healthcare and education under the guise of safeguarding, making the UK the only country in the world where healthcare bodies are legally obliged to respond to, quote, the ideological challenge of terrorism. Healthcare workers are now expected to make speculative assessments, which involves trusting one's instinct. No one referred to prevent has committed a crime. They've simply been suspected of susceptibility to radicalization. Next slide. What's the evidence for it? Despite costing at least 40 million pounds a year to implement, PREVENT has no credible evidence base and has never been independently evaluated. Its, its assessment criteria, it's called ERG22+, were based on a single psychological study. The ERG22+, paper was originally classified and not published in a peer-reviewed journal until 2015. The underlining data set has never been published. The Royal College of Psychiatrists asserts that, quote, public policy cannot be based on lack of transparency about evidence, end quote. And it calls for it to be, quote, comprehensively published and readily accessible, 
unquote. So does prevent pose professional conflicts? There needs to be a concrete risk of death or serious harm in order to justify breaching confidentiality in the public interest. If, as the Home Office insists, PREVENT is a voluntary and supportive program, the only route to referral should be through patient consent with respect for autonomy. However, PREVENT blurs the distinction between safeguarding and public protection and involves unconscious bias. This together with state and institutional pressure to comply means that many, if not most, referrals are made on the basis of very little evidence and without seeking patient consent. The inappropriate breaching of confidentiality erodes trust, compromises the therapeutic practitioner-patient relationship and discourages health-seeking behavior. It puts practitioners squarely in breach of their professional obligations, GMC guidance, and ironically, the law. Does prevent cause harm to people? The government insists that PREVENT, quote, deals with all forms of terrorism and does not focus on any one community, end quote. However, Home Office leaked documents from 2019 describe, quote unquote, PREVENT audiences as British Muslims, particularly males aged 15 to 39. Although PREVENT do not publish complete ethnicity and face data, evidence from human rights organizations demonstrates that already marginalized BME communities are disproportionately referred, which, worse, which risks worsening health inequalities, and that it is institutionally racist. There's also evidence that a prevent referral can exasperate or even lead to physical and mental health problems. But does prevent keep us safe? The UN's Special Rapporteur on Racism, Xenophobia and Other Forms of Racism, Ms. Achume, and others state that there's no causal link between PREVENT and any change in the level of terrorism or extremism in the UK. In 2018, following a visit to the UK, Ms. Etchume called on the government to, quote, at the very least, suspend the PREVENT duty and implement a comprehensive audit of its impact on racial equality and on the political, social, and economic exclusion of racial and ethnic minorities, especially within Muslim communities. So in summary, PREVENT has no credible evidence base. It's never been independently evaluated and there's a concerning lack of transparency surrounding it. The inappropriate breaching of confidentiality risks eroding trust, harming the relationship between doctors and patients and discouraging health seeking behavior. PREVENT disproportionately targets Muslims and the evidence shows that as a policy, it is racist. It does exacerbate health inequalities and it is a source of harm, both psychological and physical for marginalized people. There is no causal link between PREVENT and the level of terrorism or violent extremism in the UK. And a UN expert has called for the PREVENT duty to be suspended while a comprehensive audit of its impacts is conducted. We believe at MEDACT that we need to collectively create a society in which the sense of safety, dignity, and belonging is afforded to all people and that they are all protected. You can learn more about the contents of our presentation by reading MEDAC's report, False Positives to Prevent Counter-Extremism Policy in Healthcare. This includes recommendations to government, 
independent reviewers, health bodies, including royal colleges and researchers. You can find that online at medac.org stroke prevent dash report. And also you can follow the hashtag and prevent. How can we oppose prevent? MedAct is calling for the repeal of prevent, the adoption of evidence-based public health policies and the redressal of harms caused by prevent. It's time to take collective action. You can support our work by becoming a member of MedAct and you're welcome to please join our Securitization of Health subgroup and sign up on our mailing list. Great, thank you so much, both of you. Um, and thanks, Ian, for doing the PowerPoint for us. Um, yeah, just to say that we do, that is a lot of information, um, but you can actually find on our website um, a very neat little page that has our FAQs on there. Um, which is also like very handy to be able to send to your colleagues and to send to anyone else who might be interested or like concerned about prevent in some way. Um, and you'll get a link to that at the end of our, at the end of um, the event today. Um, and yeah, just to, just a reminder that you can put questions in the Q&A box from now. So while the chat box is closed, I think, might still be open, I don't know. Um, you can put questions in the Q&A box, so please do. And actually it'll make it easier on me if you get your questions in during the talks rather than during the Q&A time. Um, so yeah, thank you. Um, so yeah, we'll, I'll now be handing over to Dr. Lynn, Lynn Jenkins, who's going to be speaking about his experience being reported to prevent so thanks very much, Jordan, um, Amina and Marcelo. And uh, yeah, please do take it away, Lynn. Well, thank you, Reem, and thank you to this uh, Securitization of um, Health team for inviting me to this meeting. Uh, it's an honor to be able to tell you about my experience. And I'm very aware that I'm not typical of somebody who has been referred to prevent. Um, and so my experience probably won't be typical of most people, I would imagine. Um, so um, I, I suffer from a condition called late onset activism syndrome, which happens to a lot of us after we retire and we, <laughs> we need to do something useful for the next generation and the one below. And a couple of years ago, no, my, nearly three years ago now, um, I became very worried about the climate situation and I, uh, I joined XR just as it started. And I got heavily involved in it and went to all their rebellions and sat in the street and stopped the traffic and all that sort of thing. Um, walked around the BBC with a trumpet and stuff like that. And I decided that I wanted to get arrested. I was convinced that it was only going to work if a lot of people got arrested. Um, but the trouble was I, I suffer from claustrophobia, not, not dreadfully badly, but I can't go in an MRI scanner. And if I go down in a cave, I get panicky. And I thought, you know, if I go into a, a prison cell, I'm going to be in trouble. And most people were being banged up for about 12 hours or more before they got released. So I thought, I'm going to have to do something about this. So I went to my GP, who was a friend of mine. I said, what shall I do? And he said, well, you could go to the local um, mental health team 
and uh, they they have a program and they'll put you in the program and it'll be fine and you'll be great. So I thought, okay, I'll go along and do that. So I went along and um, it all seemed to go well and I had my um, deconditioning program and I managed to get down in the cellar in the house and all that stuff. And then after about the fourth session, just before Easter, when we were due to have another rebellion, and I thought, this is the one where I'm going to get arrested. You know, this is what I need to do. I got a phone call from the young lady who was running my therapy. And she said, "Uh, I've rung you to tell you that you've been referred to prevent. And I was just flabbergasted. I thought, what? (laughs) What is this about? And I, I just couldn't believe that this had happened. Anyway, she said, well, I said, well, who decided this? And she said, well, I decided it in in combination with my supervisor because she was a trainee psychologist assistant. I'm not sure what exactly her name was, something like that. And um, so I said, well, I really need to to speak to the supervisor and I want to know what's going on here. This just seems silly to me. And I explained that I'd had prevent training some while ago and I understood it was for terrorist groups and I didn't see that um, either I was part of a terrorist group or that I was liable to be brainwashed by um, Extinction Rebellion. Anyway, eventually got through to the supervisor. She got back to me and she said, this is is a safeguarding issue. This is for your benefit. We think that you are at risk of being put in a situation where you um, will be uncomfortable because you're claustrophobic and also to you're being persuaded to um, to do something criminal in order to get arrested. This is not in your best interests. And we also believe you're a vulnerable adult and therefore we've referred you to prevent. Anyway, um, so I, I complained about this and I kept ringing up and eventually about a month later, after we'd had the rebellion, I decided I wasn't going to get arrested this time because I didn't know what was going to happen about the prevent referral and how that would affect that if I did have to go and see somebody about it. Um, so um, eventually somebody got back to me and said, well, actually, your referral has been refused. They decided that we don't need to channel you, which is what it's called when you get hauled up in front of somebody and you go through some form of de-radicalization program. So I protested again and I said this was really inappropriate and I didn't think Extinction Rebellion is a terrorist organisation and so on. But I then found out, of course, that there had been a change in the law in 2015 and that um, organisations like Exile were considered extremist organisations and that they were then like people in the healthcare service were obliged to refer people who they thought were being brainwashed to carry out any sort of activism that might involve them breaking the law. Anyway, I thought that was the end of it. I thought it was a silly mistake, didn't think much of it. And then two weeks later, there was a knock on the door and two policemen turned up on the doorstep, which gave my wife a terrible shock because the last time that happened, her mother had just been killed in a car crash and she thought one of her children must have been, must have been killed anyway wasn't that. They said, we want to see Dr. Jenkins. And I said, I'm Dr. Jenkins. What do you want? We've come to see how you are. So we, I sat them down. They were very pleasant. There was a lady and there was a nice Northern Irish chap. I offered them a cup of tea and I explained to them why I wanted to get arrested. And they said, well, you're perfectly entitled to get arrested if you want to. 
And the thing is that when you get to the um, custody suite, you tell the custody suite sergeant that you're claustrophobic and he'll put you in a cell with a glass door. So I thought that was rather nice of them. And I, I said, thank you very much. That's, that's very kind of you to advise me about that. And they went on their way. And, and, and then I thought, well, that's probably the end of it. But I started to read up about it and I got uncomfortable. One of the things that somebody had told me um, from MIND, which, no, from the mental health um, group, Healthy Minds it's called, was that I would be put on a database which would be held by the police for a, an a unknown length of time. I couldn't get my name off it. And it would say that I had been referred to prevent and it would include all sorts of details about my mental health. So I thought, this isn't right. This doesn't feel comfortable. <laughs> it doesn't really matter to me, obviously, but for somebody else who was in a situation where, for example, if they were a doctor and they were looking for a job or if they were a student and they were wanting to go to university, this information might be shared. And I, I was concerned about that. And then another thing happened. And I'd set up a local exile group in my little town of Chesham. And we went along to the town council. We were invited to talk about the climate emergency. And then two of the uh, councillors stood up and said, we're not going to talk to you because you're an extremist organisation. And I thought, hmm, OK, so prevent. And also the town council now talking about extremism need to do something. So I wrote a letter to The Guardian and explaining the situation that I didn't think XR should be um, categorised as an extremist organisation. And within 10 minutes of me emailing the letter, they rang up and said, look, we really want to do an article about this, about your prevent referral. So a nice journalist um, called Rob Evans did a long interview and then they sent round a photographer who took some pictures and they did a very good article. It was back in October in the Guardian, October 2019. And that led to some um, exposure on the television, which all turned out to be a little bit unfortunate. I won't go into the details. There isn't time but it was slightly upsetting um, and made me look rather stupid, which I don't really mind at my age. I don't care really what I look like, but it was a bit upsetting. And then um, and then the BMJ included me in an article and then Medac got in touch uh, to talk to them for their false positive study, which was really interesting to go through it with them. And the study I thought was fantastic. And for a while I joined the, the group um, and I went to Liberty uh, to find out whether I could actually take a case against either the NHS or the government, really on behalf of everybody else, not on behalf. Of, I don't need any compensation. It hasn't really upset me at all, but I can see how important it is for some people, um, it, particularly younger people. Um, and there, I hear children being referred to prevent from school, all sorts of things, and they're stuck on this database. And that information seems to be shared around much more widely than I was told at the time. However, it turned out that I was out of time for the NHS and when we wrote to the Metropolitan Police to find out about whether I was on the database, they claimed that I wasn't on the database so that there was nothing more I could do. So I, I, had, to, I had to pull out at that stage um, and I have this other campaign ongoing which is um, taking up a lot of my time so I also had to pull out of the securitization group which is a shame really because I was I was enjoying that but I, I'm quite tied up with other stuff at the moment but from my point of view it felt and I've thought about it a lot since and I can see that really um, they were following their instruct their law as far as they were concerned um, and I, I felt initially this was a sort of 
maybe they were the supervisor was using it as experience for the student to see what referring somebody to prevent was like. But then when I thought about it, actually, they were just doing what they were told. You know, he was somebody who was in a so-called extremist organisation. I've got very minor mental health issues, a little bit of bipolar, and maybe they hung it on that as well. And then um, the fact that I wanted to get arrested. So I was putting myself in a position where I would then be uncomfortable because I was close. You know, it all added up to a reason why, a reasonable, from their point of view, reason why they should refer me. But when you look at it from outside, it just seems completely ridiculous. Um, so anyway, that's my experience for what it's worth. And I'm very happy to answer any questions um, at the, in the Q&A. Thank you very much. Thank you, Lynn. Um, yeah, I mean, even though I've I've read about your case and I've spoken to you, it still, you know, shocks me each time um, to hear it and yeah, to hear about it. So thanks very much. And just a reminder, if you do have questions for Lynn, um, please do put it in the Q and A box at the bottom. Um, you can find it at the bottom of your screen in the middle, I think. Um, and yeah, please do, please do that. And we've got nearly um, 40 people here today with us, which is really great. Um, and it's great to see kind of that consistency as well, people who've, who came last time and who, who are coming now as well. Um, thanks so much, Lynn. I know a lot of people don't feel comfortable talking about their experience being referred to prevent or even coming up against prevent. So I really appreciate you coming and sharing your experience um with us today and hopefully there will be a couple of questions for you too um and yeah so we're just going to now pass over to susan who will be speaking about kind of the more legal technical sides of prevent which i'm really looking forward to because even i as someone who you know reads up on and works on prevent on a day-to-day -day basis there's still stuff about prevent and the law that I don't really know and I don't really understand so um yeah please do take it away and as I said if you have questions please put that in the Q&A box at the bottom um yeah go for it Susan um well I, I think Dr Jenkins experience highlights the fact that um one can be familiar with the legal framework and um still not understand it. And I, I would say that um, I think he's given a, a quite charitable interpretation of the reaction that, that um, his healthcare provider had. Um, and I, I think he's the, that's probably extending the teachable moment to beyond um, what's reasonable if you're trying to teach a trainee how to deal with these things and you do sort of a dry run referral, which it sounded like that was uh, one of the theories for what lay behind it. But in, in my view, what his experience highlights is that the, the legal framework itself um, makes almost no sense. Um, and of course, uh, in, in the slide presentation that started off the discussion, there's reference to the fact that prevent itself and um, making these referrals might very well put you in a position where you're acting unlawfully. 
And I can see how someone could see that and, and think it, it's maybe an exaggeration, but as a lawyer, I don't think it is an exaggeration. I think these are very difficult issues. And I think anyone who would say, here's the legal framework, it's all very clear. You put your questions to me, I'll answer them. Um, and that'll be the end of it, I think is being really naive. And I, I think you can probably imagine why that is, why the legal framework is um, so problematic. It's partly because um, what the law seeks to do is something that is, uh, in my view, from a legal perspective, um, something that's quite political and that calls for value judgment and calls for um, interpretation of, of terms that are not even um, defined. Uh, of course, you as healthcare practitioners are used to um, determining what is serious harm, right? Because unlike the rest of um, those who have a, a prevent duty, you actually have already a legal framework that you operate within which every single day. So you always have any time that you would think about breaching your duty of confidentiality, you know what the other factors are that you would consider. You don't need me to take you through them. Uh, I think this is something that makes the law very different when it comes to how you as individuals and you as professionals respond to it. That's not something that educators have to think about because they um, have a different set of, of criteria that they apply and they're making it up uh, in my uh, assessment a bit as they go along. Um, just to give you a little bit of background and a little bit of framework. Um, the Counterterrorism Security Act of 2015 is what ushered all of this in. Um, you know that there are a couple of different groups that have to um, uphold this prevent duty as it's referred to. Um, and for each separate group, there's a separate guidance. No reason that you would know this, but often a law can't be implemented, can't be interpreted unless there's a guidance that goes along with it. You've seen in the, in the news in the last couple of weeks with the countries that are green light countries that we can travel to. And you've seen reference to um, pockets of the state of the, the country where people are, are meant not to move um, beyond their areas. All of that is guidance. It, it, it doesn't have legal effect. It's, it's just guidance. Um, similarly, you can have a, a law that's passed, how it's going to be actually uh, interpreted, how it's going to be implemented is something that's really catered for in the guidance, and each professional group has their own guidance. Um, the reason I, I bring up the educators is because unlike you, um, they really are making it up as they go along. They, they didn't have a framework in place and they've really suffered as a result of it. They've really bungled things pretty badly. So if you think it looks like a mess in a car crash in your profession, welcome to higher education where they don't know what they're doing. And the University of Westminster, for example, I couldn't make this up if I had to, um, decided that part of what they needed to do to um, keep a hold of what was going on in order to answer these questions, um, they, they put cameras into the prayer rooms on campus um, and did this for 
a significant amount of time before anyone said, well, wait a minute, is this something that is appropriate? Is this something that we should be doing? Um, and so adjustments had to be made and the guidance had to be rewritten and there's still lots of problems. But effectively, the guidance takes you through how you're meant to live up to your prevent duty. Um, and the reality is that there's almost nothing, including training. And I know that that's something that 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 the BMA has gotten engaged in, and it's something that MedAct has been very interested in. How do we deal with the issue of training and whether or not you're obligated to take part in training? And what are the consequences if you don't take part in training? So what I would like to do, um, I think, is take you pretty quickly, because I, I imagine you, you don't have as much need for the legal framework in detail, but I'll take you quickly through the legal framework then I'd like to, to touch on, tr on training in a bit more um, detail. And then I have a couple of sort of areas of reflection, things that I'd like you to think about and maybe put questions to me about so that this can be a little bit more practical and not just me babbling on reading statutory provisions to you. So effectively, uh, what the, the prevent duty um, is, something that that again only is an obligation for specific authorities so there there can be people within the, the community who decide to take upon themselves the prevent duty um, but the statute the law only requires certain authorities to have what they call due regard to the need to prevent people from being drawn into terrorism okay so that's what's known as the prevent duty uh, having regard to the need to prevent people from being drawn into terrorism. I mean, where to begin with that, right? What does it mean to have due regard? You tell me. What does it mean to need to prevent people from being drawn into terrorism? Do we have a definition of terrorism? Well, it turns out we don't. How about extremism? No, we don't have a definition of that either. How about nonviolent extremism? No, we don't have a definition of either. So good luck bringing that. Um, the, the one good thing about that is that if you have language that's what lawyers like to call fluffy, um, then you have a better chance of standing up to it, in my view. So if the, the legal framework were more clear, if it used um, terms that were defined, if it set forth criteria, factors that you had to consider, then I think, uh, I mean, maybe this sounds like um, a sleazy lawyer comment, but I think if the law did a better job of laying out what it took to implement it, I think you as practitioners would have a harder time saying, um, for all the reasons that, that have been already explained, that, that you don't want to take part in this and that you don't think this is right and that you feel at, um, that your your own professional judgment is being undermined. Um, I think you you would be in a hard position to do that. But what you have is a duty that's imposed on you. We know that. Um, how you come to the view of um, what it takes to to meet the the test of having due regard um, is almost like a matter for your personal conscience. Um, Comically, 
almost at the very beginning of the Counterterrorism and Security Act of 2015, there's a little section that says, we've had due regard to all this, that, and the other things. So in other words, the, the UN special rapporteur that said there hasn't been due regard to, and she, she listed a number of criteria. Of course, the government says, sure, we've had due regard to all of that. Um, whether they have is, is a separate thing. But I, I say that because what you can do as an individual is say, I have had due regard for the need to prevent people from being drawn into terrorism. It is something that I have considered. I have spoken to this person. I've listened to what they've said. I've looked at, uh, at the, the medical records and I've formed my own view about that. Um, and in, in my view, what would lead you to be criticized is if, and I know it's every practitioner's nightmare, if you see someone, you don't identify a problem, that person goes on to do something, and then someone looks back and says, well, gee, why didn't this person um, see the problem? Well, I can only say to you that every single person in this country, almost without exception, who has been involved charged, found guilty of acts of terror here in the UK has already been known to prevent, has already been known to the security service. Um, and none of them were wringing their hands and feeling ashamed for having not done more. So I, I think that um, that impression that somehow you're going to be to, um, blameworthy if you've not psychically identified people um, in what the government says is a pre-criminal space. This is the, the phrase that is used. Um, and re you remember when David Cameron was prime minister talking about, we're not just going to go after violent extremism. We're expanding to nonviolent extremism because we're concerned with the pre-criminal space. Um, not surprisingly, of course, we're the first country in the world to do that because it, it, there's just no um, reliable science to, to back up the question of whether or not it works. Um, but putting that aside, whether or not it works is the question of how you grapple with these issues. Um, I think a couple of things when it comes to training, I, I know that, uh, of course, I'm not an expert in interpreting how your employment contracts um, and other contracts that, that bind you as individuals, how, what the terms are in those, but maybe you'll, you will take um, some comfort from knowing that the guidance itself doesn't say that training has to be done in this way by these people. For example, it recommends that training be done by, um, by people who are accredited, accredited facilitators, it says. And in fact, the guidance itself gives a link to some resources paid for, almost exclusively paid for by the government. So in other words, these aren't independent trainers. So they're accredited. Um, I, I would say in this instance, accredited is, is almost the opposite of independent. Um, there are people who are paid for by the government. If you look through the list of what's on offer, um, almost everything is, is um, free that's um, sponsored by the government and extremely costly if it's not sponsored by the government. That's the other um, factor. Um, but what has happened is that individuals um, have made decisions about what they think is sufficient to satisfy the training requirement. 
Um, but I think um, there may be room for MEDEC to get involved on this particular issue because um, again, going back to the fluffy nature of what's even in the guidance when it comes to training, uh, it says that training should be done. It sh there are ways to, to, um, to deal with the competencies for all healthcare staff. Uh, essentially, that's what the guidance says, that training um, should allow relevant staff to recognize vulnerability to being drawn into terrorism. That's the phrase that's used. So when developing a curriculum, um, look at what the training needs to do. Um, the other thing is that it needs to identify competencies for all healthcare staff against these six levels. But it's a document, it's about five pages long. It's not very complicated. It's not very detailed. And in my view, it's actually not that problematic because it's a framework. It's a framework that asks you to um, reflect, to analyze, to discuss, and if that's how training was actually being implemented, that it wasn't a script being read by someone, if there actually was space for people to reflect um, and discuss how to, to deal with these issues, I, I imagine you would probably benefit from that only because um, most of, of the trusts that I've looked at actually embed prevent within their own safeguarding measures. That's the way they do it. It's the most efficient way to do it. And, the, and it calls for the greatest clarity. And again, there's a benefit from the fact that you already had a, have a framework um, that exists. But my view is that if what you're going to do uh, as a government is add on another duty, which is effectively what's happening, um, at least you as a profession know where the duty should reside and what you should be doing is grappling with how to deal with that duty within the framework of safeguarding. Um, and I think um, the problem is not just, of course, I, I completely agree with the, the BMA stance, um, at least nominally supporting people who, who decline to take part in the training. But I don't think the real problem is, is just with the existence of the training. I think the real problem is that the training itself isn't allowing for or opening people up to analyzing these questions and talking about them and reflecting about them. And if they had that scope, um, then I think those training opportunities would be useful, if only because I think in the vast majority of cases, what you would find is people would come to the conclusion that they don't need something extra to what they already have. Um, and that the idea of being asked to, to imagine um, and, and, and theorize about something in the pre-criminal space, I think most people, if they sat around with other professionals, would agree that's that's not a, a reasonable expectation that can be placed upon them. Um, the other thing that I wanted to say about training is that I have noticed that there are a number of NGOs that I have advised about um, this particular duty. So not just healthcare practitioners. So I get a call from someone saying um, there's a potential prevent problem. So someone on the front lines has flagged it up. As you know, within your settings, there's a prevent lead. Um, often it's also a safeguarding lead, but not always. So the point is that you raise it to someone else within the organization. What I was noticing, and I mentioned this to Amin last week, was that 
a number of these referrals came right after someone had taken part in a training. Um, and often when I asked them about the training and what was it that gave them concern, um, all they could say was that because they hadn't engaged um, with the, the, the facilitator of the training and they didn't know actually how to implement what they were being told, what they were being introduced to was a duty that is clear in law that it exists. That's about the end of its clarity. Um, and then the link is being made, again, I would say for political reasons, to, to sort of uh, deputize you as, as agents to identify actors in this pre-criminal space, it makes people understandably very cautious, very jumpy, and very concerned that they've missed something. And um, I, I think that's a factor, again, my view is that it's not just the existence of the training, but the way the training is carried out um, and the way it, it leaves practitioners feeling um, quite anxious uh, and though uh, as though they'll be criticized. But in terms of where to go from here, I'm, I'm happy to, um, to cut my comments short in order to answer your concrete questions. But a, a couple of things uh, occurred to me. One, I think there probably is scope and I'm, I'm anxious to hear what your experience is in terms of what the relationship is that you develop um, between yourselves and the prevent lead. What's the communication that goes back and forth? Do you know, I, I assume everyone knows who their prevent lead is. Um, and you know, uh, as the case that, that was just detailed by Dr. Jenkins, you know that it's, it's, a case where a practitioner, a frontline practitioner, then um, brings the, the, the issue up to someone higher up within the organization. He knew to ask who that was, um, who was making that decision. But what's happening in these relationships between um, practitioners and the prevent leads? Is there communication back and forth? Is there scope to improve those relationships? Because of course, it's not you that makes the decision for the referral, it's the prevent lead, that's the way it's set out. Um, but I, I also wonder if um, in terms of, um, I know this is sounds a, a bit naughty, but the government has its own list of accredited prevent facilitators, uh, again, as part of the guidance. What's to stop you as an organization from putting together um, what is a, a training curriculum that deals with these issues? And I don't think you have to, to, to hide anything. I don't think you have to, to mislead anyone. I think if you look at the framework, I, I think there, there are issues that need to be engaged with and that practitioners would benefit from the opportunity to do so in a, in a productive, useful way. Um, it's, it's probably... Um, uh, again, there's no requirement that training be delivered by, just to be clear, by an accredited facilitator, but I just think there might be scope for you to play a, a significant role as sort of outsider insiders. Um, but I know that, that there are other ideas about, um, about how to campaign around this. Um, so that, that's essentially the, the, the overall framework. The law exists, it gives you a duty, um, but in terms of how to implement it, you look at the guidance, the guidance really is um, tailored to suit healthcare professionals. Um, and the guidance is not prescriptive. It's really not. 
what's coming across in its um, delivery and training is that um, it sounds and feels frightening and prescriptive to individuals, but that's actually not what the legal framework um, would necessarily call for. And so I think there is scope, not just to campaign against the, the law itself, which of course I, I completely support, but also effectively making those, those, that, those fluffy bits work for us and not against us. Thank you so much, Susan. Um, yeah, that was really helpful. And yeah, as I said, it is just useful to hear about that kind of distinction between like, what is law? What is just guidance? And what does that mean in terms of like us being able to challenge, prevent? So yeah, thank you. And I do have more questions for you. Um, and yeah, thanks to everyone as well who spoke today. Um, yeah, just great to hear from everyone. And just a reminder to that you can put your questions in the Q&A box. We've got a few questions in there at the moment and comments, but it would just be, yeah, just great to have a few more. Um, and yeah, I thought maybe I could start off with a question from me, specifically for you, Lynn, because I know you have to go soon, but also then I'll take a couple other questions from the box. Um, from the Q&A box. So, um, so the question from me, and I'm going to do three at a time, by the way. Um, and the question from me, specifically for you, Lynn, is how did your referral to prevent and the, you know, the fact of that the psychologist calling you up and telling you you'd been referred and then the police officers um, coming? Because you, you mentioned that it then, after the referral, you decided I'm sure there must have been other reasons you decided not to go ahead and get arrested at one of the Extinction Rebellion actions, but how did it make you feel about like, or how would it have made you feel about accessing further mental health services? Um, yeah. And I'll just take a couple of other questions for Lynn and then come back just so that we have it in a grouping. Is that okay? Yeah. Okay. Um, so then one other, another question was, which health or disability related information gets passed on to prevent and from which organizations and who actually runs the prevent teams? And that question is from Barbara Vogel. Um, and then one other question is, um, how do we as volunteers find out who the prevent leads are? And that was asked anonymously. Um, so yeah, please do go ahead, Lynn. Okay, so um, it had a, 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 the effect that I stopped my therapy. I didn't trust them anymore. And I felt that uh, my confidentiality had been breached for no good reason. And I didn't think that was acceptable. So I told them I didn't want to carry on with any treatment. Um, and I would not go back to that organization again. So I've lost faith in them. I've lost trust in them. And I think this problem about the relationship between the doctor and patient breaking down so easily and and people who are much more vulnerable than me must think twice about even going to their GP or to the hospital for fear of being referred to prevent. Um, I think it's really serious breach of the relationship between doctor and patient. As far as my effect, <laughs> I did try and get arrested at the next uh, rebellion and almost did. 
and then it, it, it and then it, it was pouring with rain and the police decided to stop arresting us so I didn't get arrested in the end so I never found out what it would be like to be in a cell and whether I would have coped with it or not <laughs> well maybe for the best then <laughs> um thanks Lynn and um with regard to the other question I wondered maybe um with about which health or disability related information gets passed on to prevent and from which organisations and who actually runs the prevent teams. I wondered, Susan, if you had an idea of the type of information that gets passed on in a referral? Well, this falls under the category of anybody who would tell you they have the answer to this question is someone not to be trusted. Um, there's the theoretical uh, answer to that, which is, of course, um, I, I should have said this before that if you do as a practitioner decide that you have to breach, you still would deal with um, that sharing of information, that breach, that potential breach with the same framework that you normally would. You would give the minimal amount of information. You would try to get the consent of the patient if you could. Um, you would um, be careful and give regard to the kind of information that you gave, et cetera. Exactly the same thought process that you would normally use is the pro process that you would use here. Again, that's theoretical. What generally happens, though, is that that all flies out the window, that people think, oh, because there's an exemption that applies, same as a... Um, a communicable disease, uh, the, the exception that, that applies with respect to what has to be communicated about um, communicable diseases. You wouldn't say, okay, well, now that, I, that, now that that's triggered, I guess I might as well talk about every problem this person has had um, since they have engaged in, in treatment two years ago. Uh, of course you wouldn't, but what happens often is that what triggers the referral, the, inf the, the what is observed on the day that the person decides to make the referral is not generally the only information that's shared. What happens is as all human beings, we then look back through the lens of that decision to make a referral and look back for lots of other things to, to evidence the fact that that was the right conclusion for us to have come to, right? Which is deeply problematic because those are all things that along the way didn't lead you toward this particular conclusion. But now that you've got the conclusion, you as a practitioner go looking for the evidence to support the conclusion that you've reached. So I think we see a great deal of that. The other thing that has emerged um, as a result of some litigation that has been taken against the government is that within government agencies, there's a great deal of information that's being shared. Um, for example, there was a, a, a famous uh, judicial review that was instituted on behalf of someone who um, learned that, that he had been um, deplatformed on one occasion and that the government then, with help by um, Shaw Cross's former um, home, um, the Henry Stewart Jackson Foundation, um, and one of their student organizations had um, shared information about this person who was meant to be not platformed. Um, and they were gathering, or these organizations were gathering information about individuals they considered radical and feeding that information back to the home office, which of course sounds, you sound hysterical when you make claims like that in terms of, uh, of course, there, there wouldn't be the, the sharing of, of confidential information on that basis. 
But the lawsuit showed that that's exactly what was happening. That's precisely what was happening. And it was happening um, without any regard to, to his privacy um, rights. And in fact, um, bizarrely, um, it was a data protection um, act claim, which succeeded, which enabled that individual to get more information. Um, disclosure is what we call it when you say you think you know what the government's doing and you put the onus on them to give uh, evidence about what they're doing and then it supports your claim against them. Um, and you will have all gone through GDPR training, I'm quite sure. Um, but you'll also remember that there's a big carve out, isn't there, for security, um, state interests, et cetera. So the GDPR is, is, is not going to help us here. There will be, if the past is any indicator, there will be widespread sharing of that information. And, and you as an individual will have no right to find out who it is. Um, unless you get lucky and you find out one piece of the puzzle and then you, you, you seek to get more information. So I know that sounds um, quite negative, but I'm afraid that's the case. Thanks, Susan. And just um, like a follow up from that, in MEDAC's research for the false positives report, I guess what we managed to, not all of the NHS trusts, so we did freedom of information requests to a number of NHS trusts about the to get some kind of demographic breakdown of the people who are being referred to prevent from their trusts and many came back saying we can't give you this information um, you know this information would breach uh, data protection or would potentially make an individual identifiable but when we did get some information back you know it was also like quite haphazard some places would they would only um, you know they wouldn't uh, I'd take note of certain characteristics the people referred but in other cases you know they it did say you know this person was referred from such and such and such a hospital department within the trust um so say like the mental health department or accident emergency or whatever and then it would say you know that this person um it would say the details like the age bracket that they fell in sometimes the exact age um their ethnicity or religion which also I'm kind of confused about like um was that the person who referred them was like guessing what their ethnicity or their religion was because presumably if especially since most referrals aren't made with consent presumably that person isn't asked what you know how do you identify um and yeah so I guess the fact that there is that they're giving that information through a freedom of information request about what department they're being referred from and also other details, obviously not details of their mental, their like health condition that they sought treatment for, but presumably that data is held somewhere. Um, it's just not been disclosed to us who are just the public asking questions. Um, so I think, yeah, there is a lot of information that is being shared. Um, and as has been said, that information, then we're unsure of like how much of it is held, how long it's held for on an individual um, or yeah, who it's then sent to. Um, yeah, so sorry, that's a long winded way of saying information is a lot of information is being held. It's not always in a uniform way across trusts, but yeah, it's worrying that it is being held and shared. 
And if you were a, a jaded person, which quite obviously I'm not, um, you might say that if you went out of your way to make sure that different trusts responded different ways in terms of the level of detail they provide, um, some, as you say, responding to FOIA requests by saying we're, we can't give anything um, because those records don't exist in a format that's co consistent with our statutory obligations. In other words, if you had a bunch of different um, systems in place and different criteria being applied, then what you make it impossible to do is also do any kind of meaningful comparison or analyze the data set. We used to see this with schedule six, schedule seven stops. So uh, when someone's suspected of terrorist activity, what they used to do to make it look um, a little bit more palatable, they would throw in all of Northern Ireland with the rest of the country because everyone getting stopped in Northern Ireland is white, right? So all of a sudden the data doesn't look so crazy because schedule seven stops are very routine in Northern Ireland, much more than the rest of the United Kingdom. And so they understood that if we throw in those figures, it, it, it throws everything off. Same as this um, return to, um, kind of trope about the fact that up north we're taking um, far right radicalism, radicalization very seriously. Um, but if you look at those numbers, it's a very small part of the country that account for a big percentage. Um, but of, as, as was already referred to in the presentation, those are not um, referrals that lead anywhere. Um, similar to, to Dr. Jenkins' experience, you find that you, the referral doesn't get you channeled, as, as he explained, so quite significant. Um, and these are, in my submission, ways of, of papering over the fact that um, if you don't dilute the data set and, and introduce some misleading elements, then people would have a clearer picture and it would be discriminatory. Thank you, Susan. Um, I wondered if maybe, I don't know whether Amin, you, would you want to just, there was just a like technical question around how do we find out who the prevent leads are, but I guess like people who are working in public services would have a better idea. I would just presume you could ask your supervisor who is the prevent lead for our institution, but Amin, do you have a better idea? Um, within general practice, I know that, um, yeah, that there is a, a lead for overall for safeguarding within the CCG that will not, they will no longer exist in a short period of time because they're going to be merged. Um, but the, 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 you can at the moment uh, um, request that information from your CCG or you can find out probably through the CCG website who the safeguarding leaders um, and, their, and their contact details are usually available to. Yeah, great, thank you. Yeah, I think, so even if for example, you're, a, oh, um, bye Lynn, Lynn's leaving now. Thank you very much, Lynn. Bye. Um, yeah, if, you, if you're, for example, a parent and you're concerned about who the prevent lead in the school is, I, yeah, I presume you could, you, you could and should be able to ask, um, you know, the head teacher, or you could ask in the, with the governors who the lead is. Often, as Amin said, the safeguarding officer or safeguarding lead is also the prevent lead because the government is is kind of trying to present it as part and parcel with safeguarding. Um, but yeah, so I think it is just worth doing that to find out. Um, 
and there was a oh yeah go on Susan you see someone's just put a comment about that uh, um uh, is it okay if I read it uh, although it's an anonymous attendee uh, there's nothing yeah. identifying yeah. The person has said, as a Muslim, I don't feel I can ask questions about the higher chain of command for prevent within higher education institutions. It feels like that alone will trigger a referral. Already within training, I was asked about my personal views on whether I feel prevent targets Muslims, and I felt this was completely unnecessary. I didn't know if my answer was being monitored, what relevance that had. Um, a couple of things that are quite interesting about that um, I mean, absolutely shocking and completely inappropriate that the system is such that um, you feel discouraged. But um, as the saying goes, if a system is getting a certain outcome, you, you need to assume it was set up for that in mind, with that in mind. And I think that's the case here, that you're meant to be intimidated. You're meant to feel uncomfortable. Um, but in terms of the, the language that the, the phrase that you used is that you were asked your personal views on whether you feel prevent targets Muslims. And obviously, I, I'm, I'm not trying to, to be um, coy, but I, I think it would be, um, I mean, that, 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 in my view, highlights the problem that this isn't supposed to be based on what someone's personal views on and whether they feel something targets someone what we should be doing, whether we're in higher education, whether we're in health, whether we're in a legal setting, we should be asking, what is the evidence? What does the evidence indicate? So it's not just a question about efficacy, whether prevent works. I haven't seen any evidence that it works. And I've seen a lot of evidence that, that shows that it undermines confidence. As Dr. Jenkins has explained, people who disengage from, from receiving therapy as a, a, just a tiny example. But the point is that it's not incumbent upon you to share your views about how you feel. It's incumbent upon the government to present a policy which is evidence-based and which can persuade you um, or seek to persuade you on the basis of that evidence. And so maybe you're left with feelings at the end, um, but, but the fact is that we don't have any of that. And, and I would say it's a perfect storm because it means that the government can make you feel uncomfortable the way they have done um, by asking you to answer questions about your, your views and your feelings rather than them um, putting out for you evidence that would enable you to make a, a, an informed decision. Thanks, Susan. Um, there's a couple of other questions in the box that we hopefully have time for. So one was a comment slash question saying, I went on prevent training and I felt angry about the way it was done. And I also felt that if I wasn't radicalized, then I surely would be after the session. It was that bad. I'm too old to be radicalized, which I didn't realize there was an age limit. <laughs> what you're saying is very interesting. The interesting thing was that the council had sent an email out to only Muslims and nobody else. Um, what do you think? Maybe we should try and take some of these councils on harassment and discrimination. And that was sent anonymously. And I'll just read out the next one as well, which was, I had to do mandatory training as a healthcare assistant. I left that training as my last e-course and that was after I'd already known Medat and had experience with the fight against prevent in previous years. It's shocking what they ask you in training. There's a push for you to listen to your gut instincts about suspicion. And by the time you read those slides in the prevent training, you feel you're being pushed to spy on patients and colleagues. 
to hold so many um, as suspect to become involved in acts of terrorism. I work in mental health care and I can't even start to imagine how dangerous this is. It's like we're almost extended arms of the Home Office. How can we dismantle this? Um, so I wondered, Susan and Amin, I wonder if, there, if you want to respond to either of those. I've been doing all the talking, so I was going to defer to Amin. No, I think you should speak, Susan. To, you're a better place to speak to this. I'm happy to and answer. You're, you're the guest speaker as well, Susan, so we have to make the right. most of you. Um, well, two things. I, I, I'll deal with, um, with that question, but I would like if the person who made the, the comment about the, the council, um, I, I would like to understand, um, and, and maybe a bit of clarification might be possible, uh, is that are, are you saying that you the only people that were um, invited to the prevent training war Muslims is that the level at which um, the the separation was taking place so the council sent out an email saying um, come to this prevent training and you later found out that it was only even sent to Muslims I think that's what you're saying um, I mean that that's if that's the case, then at the very first, um, they're not implementing the, the prevent duty, right? The prevent duty doesn't, um, isn't exclusive to Muslims. That's a ridiculous, um, I mean, it sounds like I'm defending the law. In this case, I am. The law is stupid, but it's not that stupid. And the, the law can't um, and doesn't give the council a discretion to decide who should be taking part in training. If there's training, then everyone has to take part in it. Um, and if and if it's being carried out in a way that's discriminatory, in addition to being discriminatory, I would say um, it, it's not lawful because it's not implementing what's in the guidance. So yeah, I, I think that's pretty uh, pretty outrageous. Um, and the, the question about the, the e-course, um, and the experience, experience that, that that individual has had. How do we dismantle this? I think, um, I think the best way to do it, I, I sound like a broken record, but, but I think prevent is not going anywhere in the short term. I think it serves this government's agenda. Um, I think what they've shown, and it's not unique to the Tory party in any way, but what this particular government has shown is that anything that gives them the ability to, um, to limit our rights and our freedoms, they're, they're going to take advantage of and they can't resist. And this is a, an area that's really ripe for um, abuse. Uh, and I think if you do something in the name of national security in the fight against terrorism, it's almost a get out of jail free card in terms of what the public will, um, will tolerate. That's the difficulty that people feel reassured by prevent. The, the fact is that there's nothing to make people feel that way. There's nothing to justify their feeling that way, but that's where we are. Um, and that's why I don't think prevent's going anywhere. Uh, I think um, the review will, will be another superficial review and we can tell by the way it's being structured that that's where we're headed. And I think it's, um, it's probably unwise to to imagine a, a result that's different from the one that is anticipated. 
But in terms of how to dismantle it, the only way that, that I can suggest it um, is that we take advantage of the fact that there is a legal framework within which you're operating, both in terms of what's fluffy in the prevent framework and what is the opposite of fluffy in your own safeguarding framework and how you have dealt for hundreds of years as medical professionals, how you've dealt with these issues of, of the tension between uh, serious harm and the individual uh, and, their, and their, not just their right to privacy, but the, the considerations uh, that, that mean you want to keep them in treatment and you want to keep them engaged. I, I think you you beat these people at their own game by saying that we've got a system that works beautifully. Um, we're trained on it. We would love more training. We would love more opportunity for reflection. Um, when when Amin and I worked together at Medicine du Monde, we had a social worker um, who was one of our interns. And she was saying, oh, I have to carve out an hour on Thursdays. That's for my reflection. I thought, wait a minute, tell me more about this. I don't know anybody who spends an hour a week reflecting on their personal professional commitments, but it was built into their curriculum and it was expected that she do that. And I think, interestingly, if you look at what the guidance says, the guidance says that that training should be looking at this framework and the framework includes reflection. So let's do that. Thank you, Susan. Um, I wanted to mean if you wanted to add or should, should we? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm conscious of the time and I, but, but equally, I think it's probably a good, a good time to, to add what we wanted to um, about the, the securitization group. So, in, in our experience, um, I think it's fair to say organizations that are there to support us um, have, have, have primarily focused on what can't be done. Um, and that's been, a, that's been disheartening, but, and I can, I can certainly, res I resonate with what Anna said um, with regards to our role as, as healthcare workers and, and the frustration that comes with, with having to, or, 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 the, or the feeling of having to comply with this. Um, but the flip side is that actually, through, through working with MEDACT, I think if there's, um, what you focus on grows. That's a, that's a saying that, that that really resonates with me. And I think what we've done is we focused on trying to grow what can be done. And I think listening this evening, particularly to what Susan's had to say about you know, the fluffy bits, has for me instilled a great deal of hope because I agree that the end point we would like to dismantle prevent, right? We're about ending prevent, but realistically, that's unlikely to happen in the short term, as Susan said. However, as healthcare workers, our primary intention is to reduce harm. And there's clearly a great deal that we can do to reduce harm. Um, and with that in mind, I think I would encourage people that, you know, look, it's like, you know, it's, it's coming up to half seven now and there's still people at the event that are clearly very engaged and really wanna help. So I would encourage, people and thank you for, for participating and staying on board for this long and it's obviously a really heavy topic. Um, 
thank you for that. And, and I'd encourage you to get involved with the securitization group because one thing we don't have a great deal of is human resource. Like there's a lot that we'd like to do, but we are a small group and we have limited resources and capacity with the mostly voluntary in terms of our actions, like it's volunteers. So the more people we have in, in, involved, the, the more we're able to do, obviously, you know, within you know, whatever capacity you have uh, and skill set you have. So yeah, do please get involved. I'm really excited about what actually we could potentially do um, in spite of, as I say, those that uh, uh, kind of claim to be in support of, of, of what we're trying to do, having little in the way of uh, kind of uh, suggestions. I'm sure, I'm sure there's much that we can, we can build on from, from this evening and the work we've done in the last year. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, Amin. Thanks, Susan. And um, Marcelo and Lynn, who's left us, uh, just thanks so much for um, your talks, but also, yeah, your openness, willingness to answer the questions. Thank you to um, everyone who's attended for, as Amin said, staying on this long in the call, and also for the questions that you asked. Um, I'm really happy to like have any questions directed at me, for example, the person who asked um, you know, who the um, message had been sent out to just Muslims by the council, um, please do email me and we can like have a think collectively about what you can do to follow up on that. Um, and anyone else who has any other such questions, you know, you shouldn't have to, to deal with that alone. Like, come, this is what the Securitization of Health Group is for. And, you know, I'm really happy to, to like help you think through what you do next. Um, and yeah, I've just put a link in the chat box. Um, and if you open that up, you'll be able to see. So we're holding a meeting, our next securitization of health group meeting to talk about how we can challenge prevent um, is will be on the 9th of June. Um, and you can see in the link that I sent, there's, you, there's a link for you to register for that meeting now. Um, but also in that link that I've um, put up in the chat box, I'll just send it again. I'm just worried that people won't see it. Um, in that, yeah, in there you can see there's a link to sign up to join our Securitization of Health mailing list. There's um, links to the FAQs. Um, so the FAQs that I, that I mentioned before and that form the basis of the presentation given before. Um, that's up on the website, as is a small, like two-sided leaflet um, on how people who come up against prevent in the workplace or otherwise can be supported, whether that's to, you know, through trade union links or whether that's um, legal support. Um, obviously, we can't provide legal support, but we can point you in the direction of people who can. Um, so yeah, please do take a look at that. And then I've put the um, the two reports that we have on prevent and on counter extremism in healthcare in there as well. So please do take a look, share it with people you think might be interested um, and get in touch with us. So you can email me on reemabuhaya at medapp.org and I'll, you know, my name is quite long. So I'll just post that in the chat as well. Um, and yeah, uh, we, you know, I would just, yeah, really reiterate what Amin said, and please do join the Securitization of Health group. And we do really need more people who are willing to put in a bit of work to just um, push on prevent in healthcare. And it's so interesting to hear about 
that kind of how we can use that vagueness of the guidance to our benefit. And I really want to explore that with people. Um, and yeah, and thanks once again for signing up. And do it, you know, if if you sign up to be a member of MedApt, you can do so by paying as little as one pound per month. And yeah, we're only able to do the work we can do through the support of our members um, and the dedication of our members like Amin and like Marcelo who joined us today. So yeah, thank you all so much. And um, I hope that I will see you again soon. Thank you for listening. If you want to find out about future MedAct events, you can sign up for email updates from us at www.medact.org forward slash emails.